If you would, turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue to look uh, at this marvelous book, the superiority of Christ, that Jesus is better. He's better. He's better than anything that came before him. He is the, the telos. He is the end for which all of creation exists, for the glory of the Lamb and the glory of his name. Before we looked in earnest in chapter 3, I just want to kind of bring us up to speed a little bit. I've been away uh, at least last week. Again, thank you to Mr. Fender. I haven't heard his sermon yet, but I know it was faithful. Uh, that's what I love about this church. There's a lot of things I love about it, but I know that the man that the elders will call to stand behind this pulpit will be a faithful man, a man who will exposit the Word of God, not through eisegesis, but exegesis. What does the Spirit say? What has He said? What is He saying now to the church through His prophets and apostles? So we come now to chapter 3, but before we begin to look at chapter 3, we began by looking in chapter 1 in verses 1 to 4 about the dignity and the glory of the Son, the Son of God, the final word. Then in verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1, we saw where the preacher, the author to this sermonic epistle, exhorts and shows forth the superiority of the Son to angels. And this set up very perfectly the first exhortation there in chapter 2 that we are called to pay attention to this message concerning the Son that God has now revealed in these last days, lest we drift away. And what a powerful image. Just think of a little sailboat on a lake just lift, drifting away aimlessly without direction, being carried along, as it were, by the current of a culture or the current of wind of the culture, right? Lest you drift away. And this is followed by a further description of Christ as the, the last Adam, right? The archetypal man, the one who brings new creation, who brings God's intention for Adam in the garden to fruition through faithfulness and his active and passive obedience. He brings now to this culmination and brings mankind into this, this glorious rent. How majestic is thy name in all the earth, that thou hast made man a little lower for a season. But now we see him, Jesus Christ, risen, raised in glory. And this now brings us to chapter 3 as we consider Jesus. That's the title of the sermon. And I thought, well, what a, a bland, plain title. But couldn't that be the title of every sermon uh, that any minister would ever preach? To consider Jesus. You haven't said anything until you speak about Jesus. right? Jesus, the, the sweetest name in all the world. So let's give attention now to the hearing of God's Word as I will read chapter 3, 1 through 6. Let us consider Jesus from His Word in chapter 3 of Hebrews. It's found on page 1002 of your pew Bible. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider or take notice of, set your minds to the apostle, the one who sent the the envoy of God and high priest of our confession, our declaration, who was faithful to him, that is to God, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house or household. For Jesus has been counted or considered worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house, parenthetically, is built by someone, 
but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house or household or family as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house or household as a son. And we are his house or household if indeed we hold fast our confidence, our boldness before God, and our boasting in our hope. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's go pray and consider him even as we pray and ask his blessing. Our Lord God, we come before you in the merits and the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords, King of kings, the glory of heaven and earth, the last Adam, the true son, the faithful son, the true Israel who has fulfilled all righteousness, who is the righteousness of his people. Lord, we rest in him. We pray now we would hear in him. We would preach in him. Lord, that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart, that you would enable us by your spirit to make much of Jesus. Oh, Father, that we would love him and see him in all of his glory, that we would consider him, applying our minds to him, who is person and his work in all of his beauty and perfections. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Over and over again, the the writer to the Hebrews has reminded us of this great theme that Jesus is better. And here he brings us to chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, to consider him. Right? He's better. He's better than all that God revealed in the Old Covenant He's the goal and telos, as Paul would say in Romans 10.4. He's the end of the law, the telos of the law. The law was given 430 years after the promise to drive us to the seed. He's the seed in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, right? He's the goal. And for these new Jewish Christians here that the writer is addressing to Return to Judaism, to go back to the the temple and the temple sacrifices would be a return to Moses. It would be going backwards and abandoning Christ, the the great high priest of his people. We think, what is the application for us? Just quickly, in whom or what are we trusting today for salvation? What are you looking to? Who are you looking to for your salvation, for your acceptance with God? Who are you considering? What are you considering Right? Are you considering the law? That's good and noble. Your own obedience to the law, that would be a good thing, a right thing. Perhaps Christian ordinances, all good and fine. But you see, it's only Christ who can save. It's only Jesus, beloved. And beware of anything and anyone, anything that would tempt you to turn away from following Jesus. You see, the author has concluded chapter 2 by stressing that because Jesus overcame sin and temptation during his earthly ministry, he's now able to help those who are now being tempted. And he begins now with the application, the implication that flows out of that last verse there in chapter 2, verse 18. Notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. He now draws out the implication because Christ is this last Adam, this archetypal man, who is not ashamed to call us his brothers, who's adopted us, brought us into the family, who suffered death, who made a propitiation to cleanse us and to sanctify us. Notice what he says. Therefore, right? You see the implication now, the doctrine's flowing. 
right? The application is flowing from the doctrine. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Notice he addresses them as holy brothers. Again, this points us back to chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. They all have one origin, one father. And as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're holy because he's washed us. He's sanctified us by his precious blood, by his innocent blood as our elder brother who has made propitiation for our sins. And not only are we holy, we are now children of God in Christ. We are therefore holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, right? We have a heavenly calling to a heavenly Jerusalem. We're now family. That's what unites us. We share in this same calling, right? That's the common denominator that we have. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been called out of the first Adam into union with the last Adam. And now we are the household of God. We're the family of God. We don't gather just because we have the same ideologies or the same political philosophies. We gather together as those called out of darkness into union with Jesus Christ. We're brothers. We're sisters. We're the family of God. We're holy. We've been set apart definitively. And now we're being progressively made more holy like our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it so happens we're so quick to read over these verses, but we need to stop and think about what he's saying, the implications of what the writer is saying when he calls us holy brethren. You see, not only have we a calling from heaven, we have a calling to heaven. You see, we're on a pilgrimage. We're a people in exile, right? We are not home yet. That's right, that's the, the great treasure that heaven awaits us. And we persevere in our Lord Jesus Christ as we consider him, as we take captive every thought to the obedience of God. What does God say about this matter, about that matter? What shapes our worldview? All of these things matter to us because we have this holy calling in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds us here, right, as he reminded those first recipients of the letter who were struggling, who were vacillating, saying, I don't know, it's kind of difficult. I'm being a little oppressed. I'm being persecuted. I'm being ostracized because of my faith. I'm tempted to turn away. I'm tempted to turn back to what's known, the status quo, going back to Judaism, back to the sacrifices there in the temple, right? It was so tempting for them, right? They have their the confiscation of their property. They've not yet shed blood, but they're feeling the pressure, right? The vice of the world is, is tightening upon them, and they're thinking about going back to, to the Judaism that they knew, right? But he calls them to press on in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have this great calling from heaven to heaven. And he reminds us that when we become weary and heavy laden, Right, that our salvation is all of grace, right? That God authored this plan, that He decreed it, He secures it, He applies it, that He who began this good work in us is faithful and He's going to complete it in Christ Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's now the, the writer tells us to consider Jesus, right? The NIV translates this word. I used, typically don't quote the NIV, but I do believe it captures the, the idea of the Greek here. It says to, to fix our thoughts on, right? There are a lot of things the preacher can tell you to fix your thoughts on, to consider, right? Consider the law. Consider your obedience, right? Again, right and good, but the one thing we must consider above everything is the Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Savior who takes away the sin of the world, right? There's so many temptations to speak about as a preacher, but here the preacher tells us to consider Jesus. So when you're tempted to turn back and give up, consider Jesus. Consider him who from eternity considered you, who set his love on you before time began. Consider him, right? Consider him who in the fullness of time was born of a virgin under the law to redeem those under the law that we might become not only just justified, not only sanctified, that we might receive the spirit of adoption, that we might become part of the family of God. We might become the sons of God who cry, Abba, Father, right? Consider him when you're tempted to sin and compromise. Consider Jesus as he hung on Calvary's cross on Good Friday for your sins, who considered the joy of your salvation that drove him to the cross in obedience to his Father. Consider him. Young person, when you're called to stand for righteousness in the name of Christ at school or among your peers, right? Consider Jesus, who before Pilate made the good profession of faith. And beloved, when you're discouraged and your soul is as dry as dust, right? You've been there before, right? You don't feel like praying, but you pray out of duty and rightly so. But consider him. Begin to think upon him. Think upon his beauty, his his excellencies, his perfections, his work and what he secured for you in in his death and resurrection and ascension. Consider Jesus, who even this day, this hour, the writer to the Hebrews will go on to tell us in chapter 7, ever lives to make intercession for you. That Jesus is still serving his church, his bride. That he ever lives to, to pray for you, for your perseverance. You see, he secured your perseverance, that you would persevere. And one of the means of perseverance is his prayers. That God has ordained the prayers of the, the great high priest who's been given a, a priesthood, not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek that has no beginning or end, that he prays for you. He loves you. He's going to get you all the way home. He's ordained it to be so. Consider Jesus, we're told, he goes on, the apostle, right? Heaven's envoy, God's ambassador sent by the Father not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. You see, the world is already condemned. But the Father sent the Son that the world might have life. Consider him the last Adam who brings forgiveness and imputed righteousness. That today your your conscience is clean and free. That you you can dance before the Lord. You can shout shouts of joy before the Lord because you have an imputed righteousness. A righteousness that you didn't secure through the works of the law. That's been credited to you. That he's deposited in your account Consider him, consider this Jesus of Nazareth who is your righteousness, you see. This is the one we're to fix our minds on, to consider. Consider the one who's our great high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies into heaven itself on our behalf, not with the blood of bulls and goats, who entered into the Holy of Holies with his own innocent, precious blood, sinless blood, blood that never sinned. And he brought it into heaven itself to make an atoning sacrifice for sin. So discouraged and weary saint, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, the one we've renounced all to follow. Consider him the incomparable one in whom we count all as loss, that we might have him, the, the pearl of great price. Consider him. 
Think upon him. Fix your minds on him. Well, the author, having called us to consider the apostle and high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, now contrasts the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest, with Moses. And I just want to point out a couple of things to you, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that last if clause there in chapter 3, verse 6b. But first, the first thing I want to bring to your attention as we consider this contrast between Moses, an envoy, an apostle, the Lord sent and appointed by the Lord in the Old Covenant, foreshadowing Christ who was to come, that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is the faithful builder of God's house. You see the difference? Right? It's not that Moses is somehow diminished and rendered insignificant. No, he's significant. But his glory and his honor pale in comparison to the one who's the builder of all things, the one who is the builder of the church, the builder of God's household, our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what it says there in verse 2. We're told that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And we know from verse 6, this word house here should be understood as household, right? The family, the, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Believers are considered the household of God. In our Old Testament reading this morning, as Wes read, you might remember that with Miriam and Arian challenging their brother Moses' credibility that isn't there another prophet in the land, right? And the Lord coming and reminding Aaron, reminding Miriam, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful, what? In all my house, in all my family, in all my household, you see. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. You see, Moses was greatly admired in the old covenant and rightly so. But now that Christ has come, he pales in comparison to God's final word in his son. And while Moses was a servant in God's house, it is Christ who builds a house. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Now remember the context. Jewish Christians, newly converted, facing persecution, being ostracized, ridiculed, mocked, going back to Moses, right? Because they're thinking, well, it's so much easier under the law, under the the shadows, the types, under the picture book of the Old Covenant. We had it so much better then than we have it now, right? We weren't being persecuted then the way we are now, right? They're undergoing all of this, this opposition for their faith and tempted to return. And the writer is telling them, as tempting as that is, as great as Moses was, despite his faithfulness in God's house, the Honor ultimately belongs to whom? To the house or to the architect? To the builder of the house, right? You marvel at the builder, the architect of the house. And that architect and builder is the exalted son, Jesus Christ. He is superior to Moses, who was a type of Christ. We cannot turn back. There's no place else to go, for he alone has the words of eternal life. Where else are you going to go in this world, in this crazy world that we now live? 
other than to Jesus, the exalted builder, the exalted son. You see, all the Old Testament types and Moses furthered the house-building project of God's son, but they were temporary. Hebrews 10.1, the law and Moses were but a shadow of the things to come. And as Jesus said in John 6, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. I am the bread of life. You see, where else are you going to go? Moses is not the bread of life. Jeremiah is not the bread of life. The Mosaic rituals were not the bread of life. They were just pictures pointing forward. They were shadows pointing forward to the Son, to the builder of the house, the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot turn back. Well, not only was Moses the the faithful builder, Moses was a faithful, rather a faithful servant. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is the faithful over God's house as a son. Here's the comparison to the faithful servant, to a faithful son. We're told in verse 5 that Moses was not only faithful in God's house, he also testified to things that would be later revealed, right? He testified that one day God was going to raise up a prophet like himself, who was going to speak in Deuteronomy 18. He would raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And beloved, the author here is telling us Christ is that prophet. As we saw back in chapter 1 long ago, and in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, i.e. Moses. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. You see, Christ is the appointed heir of all things. He's the creator. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the upholder, the sustainer of the universe. And here, Christ, we're told, is the faithful son over God's house. So he's not only the builder, he's also the reigning son. He's the son who is the builder and lord over God's house. And beloved, we're told in verse 6b, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in hope. Well, before we go on to look at this call to perseverance, I just want to take a little sidebar here to speak with you about, ever so briefly, explore the theme of the church as God's house. Have you thought about it that way? That the church is God's household. It's his family. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, we corporately are the temple of the living God. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, the church is a holy temple where God dwells by His Spirit, where He is worshipped and served. This is why the writer of the Hebrews will go on to tell us in chapter 10, verse 25, don't forsake yourself the assembling together, as some are apt to do. But come together for worship. It is in the church as God's house we are to encourage one another daily, where we're to stir up one another to love and good works. You see, friends, the Bible has no place for a low view of the visible church as it regards membership or spotty attendance. 
But somehow you think, well, you know, I'm a little tired today. It was raining this morning. The rain's coming down really hard. Man, I don't know if I can get out of this. These, these sheets are so comfortable, and this pillow, right? My pillow, I bought it online. It's great. I got the second generation. It's, it's cooling. Even as I sleep, it's wonderful. Isn't that the way we think, right? I know that's silly, but isn't that what we do? We, we come with the lamest excuses about forsaking the assembling of ourselves together under the means of grace. To hear a foolish man preach a foolish message in the weakness that God has given him to preach it. You see, beloved, how are you going to fulfill... Get this now, right? We're, we're Presbyterians. We really stress the third use of the law, right? We love that, and rightly so. Out of gratitude, we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, sanctified by faith alone in Christ alone, right? And yet, out of gratitude, we walk in obedience to the the rule of the law, right? This is how we please the Father, because that's what you want to do. When your heart's regenerated, the law is now written not on stone. It's written where? It's on the heart, right? Jeremiah 31, he writes it on the heart. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not have a graven image. Thou shalt not misuse thy name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt honor the Sabbath day. You see, that law is written on our heart. We want to obey that law. Not to earn his favor, but because of his favor. So with that said, how are you going to fulfill all the one anothering God calls you to in Christ if you're not in the local church? Right? Somehow it's superfluous or or it's, 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 it's a secondary issue, not a primary issue. Right? That you're not seated in, in a resident in the household of God. You're not a communing member. You're just a, a regular visitor. And we're grateful. And we're so thankful. We encourage you to continue to attend. We love that. But we long for you to come into full communion. To come into full communicant membership. Because that's what the Bible understands by being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Beloved, as the church, we are God's house. We don't belong to ourselves, right? We belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, we belong to Christ what? Christ's body. And who's Christ's body? We're the body. We're the household. We're the family. Listen to the confession, chapter 26, paragraph 1, on the communion of the saints. Being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. You see, if you're not here, how am I going to have communion in your gifts and graces? Well, you say, I don't have many gifts, and I don't have a lot of grace. I'd beg to differ, right? We are to commune mystically in union with Christ with one another, right? We're not these little atoms, atomistically just out there floating in the ether of, call, of something called Christianity. No, we're the body of Christ. We're called to know each other to love each other, to to bear each other's burdens, to confess our sins one to another, to hold up our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We're only as strong as we are as the weakest point, to go to that weakest Christian and to hold them up, to pray for them, to love them tangibly, concretely, you see. This is what it means. All that one anothering in the Bible can only be done in the visible church, and we are the visible church. That's why it's so important to stress this. 
But notice as we go on now, as we conclude with this warning and an encouragement to these weary, professing, struggling believers there. They're, they're coming out of Judaism. They're, they're struggling with the realities of the new covenant. Right? There's, not, there's not as much tangible, concrete things to grab hold on to. Right? All those Sabbath rituals, all those sacrifices, they were all so concrete and tactile, I could put my hands on them. And now I'm told that this Jesus of Nazareth died, he was buried, he was raised, he ascended, he lives in heaven, and, and he's my righteousness, and all I need is to look to him and to keep my eyes fixed on him. But I can't see him. But I can see all these other things. You see all the temptations that they had to go back to what was known. And he concludes with this warning yeah, yeah, Calvinist, yeah, he concludes with a warning and an encouragement to these struggling believers. Notice what he says there in verse 6b. And we are God's house, i.e., we are God's household. Notice what it says. What's that two-letter word there? If. Oh, 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 oh. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting. Well, what are we to make of this little word, if? Simply this, that perseverance, right, continuing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is proof, is the fruit of our salvation. It's the fruit of those who are truly united to Jesus Christ. And if you'd have been in Sunday school this morning, I'm singing the same song that Mr. Hutton sang, right? All true believers are eternally secure, and that security will be seen in the believer's perseverance. That the Christ who began the good work in you is faithful to complete it by working to will in you what is good and pleasing to God, even as you work it out with fear and trembling. So is God sovereign or you're responsible? Which is it, pastor? Yes, Yes, God is sovereign over your salvation. He ordains it. He authors it. He secures it. But he ordains not only the end, which is your glorification, when your sanctification, according to Herman Bobbing, will give way to glorification when you see him, and you will be made like him in an instant. On that day, sanctification will be over. You'll be glorified. He ordains it all. He ordains the means to that end. He ordains your definitive sanctification. He ordains your progressive sanctification, your mortification, your vivification, all authored and ordained by the sovereign Lord, the triune God. You see, he's done it all. You see, all true believers will continue in the faith to the very end. All those who fail to persevere like Demas, do you remember Demas in the Word of God? Who forsook the gospel? Who forsook Paul because of the love of the world? Or Judas, who, who ministered ever so closely to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who supped with him, ate with him? The Lord Jesus Christ even washed his feet. And yet forsook the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Both reveal by their actions that they never truly possessed saving faith and were never truly saved. Just as the author is going to go on to quote Psalm 95, do you remember that generation that perished in the wilderness? What had they seen? 
What are some of the glory, some of the miraculous things that they had seen in that community? The opening of the Red Sea, the splitting apart of the sea, the swallowing up of the Egyptians. And yet they perished in the wilderness. And they did not enter God's rest. Why? Because they failed to believe, to, to keep on believing, to keep on considering, to keep on taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. They became lazy and began to coast, like Timorous in Pilgrim's Progress, who began to coast until he, he goes along the path, the narrow path, and sees the two lions, and he turns back. And doesn't continue, or, or pliable, who, who leaves with Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's, or Bunyan's Pilgrim from the city of destruction. Remember him? As Pilgrim began to tell him the glories of the celestial city and all the, the glories of heaven, who said, ah, I want that. But then, after going a little way to fall only into the sloth of despond, and began to complain and grumble, oh, what is this? This is too difficult. Where's all the glory? And, and Bunyan goes out of his way, and he tells us that, that Pliable got out of the sloth of despond. Now listen, he got out of the sloth of despond on the place closest to his house. Or Mr. Worldly Wiseman in Bunyan. Remember him? He also began well, but he didn't finish. Do I believe in the perseverance of the saints? Absolutely. I believe it. The question is, who are the saints? The answer is, those who persevere to the end who counted a joy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who by the power of the resurrection embraced the fellowship of his sufferings. That in my weakness his glory may be made much of and magnified. Who love him. Who count all loss to have him. Right? who will find him in a field and sell everything they have, the Tesla, whatever it is, the Bitcoin, real estate, Wall Street, I don't care, give me Jesus. Silver and gold have I none, right? I don't care, but you give me Jesus. I'm considering him who is the captain of my salvation, the archegos, right, the pioneer who has made the way into the Holy of Holies. He's my confidence. He's my boast. He's my hope. You see, this is the Christian heart. Now that level of intensity waxes and wanes, right? Maybe today you're here and you're, I'm not feeling it, Pastor. Okay, that's okay. But isn't there just something there, a little something? Isn't there a little thirst? Like the deer panting for the stream, so my soul pants for you. Isn't there just something there? And if there's nothing there... That should cause you great concern. If there's no desire for holiness, no desire to, to persevere, no desire to, to work out this great salvation with fear and trembling, even as he works to will within you, if there's no desire, 
then perhaps maybe you need to do some inventory to consider your, your calling and election, to, to make it sure. You make it sure first and foremost by, by considering him who is your righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, the divines go on, he says, you, you make it sure by working it out as well, right? As well as the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, right? Like a three-pronged stool, three-legged stool, right? Christ and Christ alone, right? The great fruits that flow from union with Christ. He's the vine, we're the branches. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. He who abides in me and I in Him, He will bear what? Much fruit. Right? And also the internal witness of the Spirit. That we believe in the third person of the Trinity. The living God. You know, Calvin was the one reformer. He, he was the, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. That was the accusation. He was too mystical. Oh, to be like Calvin in that way. All right? Listen to 1 John 2, 19. My brother mentioned it this morning. As 1 John is written, giving three tests for assurance of those who are truly, genuinely converted, those who've been born of the Spirit. And he speaks here in chapter 2 about those who professed faith in Christ initially, but didn't continue. This is what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. They didn't continue. They began the race well. The, 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 the gun banged, and they left the blocks sprinting. But somewhere along the line, they became less interested in Jesus, began to make little compromises, began to cuddle sin rather than to kill it, to bring it close to their bosom rather than put a knife in it, you see. Saints, Hebrews is clear. No perseverance, no salvation. Not because you had it and lost it, but rather because you never had it to begin with. And here in Hebrews 3, those who by grace continue to hold fast their confidence and boast only in the hope found in Jesus Christ will overcome temptation to fall away from Christ. Again, the warnings in Hebrews are the very means that the Holy Spirit uses to work in us the very perseverance He desires for us. He ordains the end, but He ordains the means to that end. And that's persevering, even as He preserves us. You see, He bought it all. It's, it's all of grace, but it's not absent of the very perseverance He secured for us. So you want to, be, to persevere this morning? You, you want to finish? Then consider Jesus. Literally, give serious attention to, apply your mind to all that he is and accomplished for you. Begin to fix your eyes on Jesus every morning when you wake up. 
Asking yourself, what is Jesus? What does the Word of God have to say about this matter, about that matter? Child-rearing, husbanding, being a wife, being an employee, being a brother, being a sister. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Consider Jesus. Consider His Word. Fix your eyes on Him. You see, all the glitter of, of Vanity Fair sparkles, but never forget this, beloved. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Moses was a faithful servant in God's household. But Moses did not die for you. He didn't rise for you. He didn't ascend for you. He didn't take the merit of his blood into heaven for you. But the one whom Moses preached did, the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider Christ. The apostle and high priest of your soul. As the hymn writer says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And we do this not independently of the church, the visible church, but we do it within it, together. Together we live on the word read, preached, and obeyed. This word that tells us and calls us to consider Jesus. May he give us grace to do that this day, and then on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday. And we'll do it for 80 years, if we get 80 years, if we get 79 years, if we get... 15 years, who knows, but you do it every day. You consider Jesus. It's time to wake up, church. The world is dark. It's a dark place. This present evil age, where the hearts of many are growing cold, where men revel in evil and call good evil. Oh, beloved, we need to wake up and we need to consider Jesus like we've never considered him before. And by grace, may it make it so, right? Pray for me, pray for me. Pray that this pastor will pray and consider Jesus every day. That Before my feet hit the, hit the floor beside my bed, would my pastor consider Jesus today? By grace, Lord, would you enable him by, by faith to fix his thoughts and his mind on you, Lord Jesus? I'm gonna pray that for you. Let's pray now. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, the great captain of our salvation, the great pioneer who's gone before us into the Holy of Holies to make a way that we can come boldly with great confidence in our time of need to this throne of grace. Oh, Father, crying, Abba, Father, because the Spirit now lives within us, and this Spirit has regenerated our hearts. This Spirit now lives within us as the great deposit the guarantor of the great inheritance that's kept for us even as we're kept for it. But that keeping is not divorced from persevering, by considering, by working to will what is good and pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, would you give us grace to work out this great salvation, all for the glory of the Lamb, and the glory of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We pray now in his holy name. Amen.